This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. Before the Minnesota Orchestra locked out its musicians last October in a season-long labor dispute, the orchestra's administration had already locked down a large number of domain names on the Internet, buying up at least a dozen web addresses that were variations on Save Our Minnesota Orchestra. This is the latest example of political-style web advocacy that has moved into the realm of classical music and the arts. Today, we'll get three views on this, starting with Emily Hogstad. She is a writer and musician who uncovered the Minnesota effort in her blog, The Song of the Lark. Now, Emily, you wrote that you were trying to set up a website to rally support from audience members for locked-out musicians, and then you discovered that a lot of the obvious choices were already taken? Yeah, it was quite the surprise. Um, I've written about the uh, Minnesota Orchestra negotiations for about a year now, and over that time I've accumulated some really fabulous readers. And so we've all been in contact online and in person. And over the summer, as nothing got done, we started talking among ourselves, well, how can we make patrons' voices heard? We wanted to try to expand the narrative a little bit from musicians versus management to musicians, management, and community because we all felt like we're stakeholders and uh, we really wanted to be involved. And so we looked a little bit to Detroit because during the six-month-long Detroit Symphony strike a couple years ago, the patrons there had formed a group called Save Our Symphony or SOS, so some of my readers and I got in touch with them, and we talked about maybe launching something similar here. But obviously, before we settled on a name, we wanted to make sure that we'd have a website. So one night a few weeks ago, I was looking it up to see how expensive it would be and what names were available. And we were initially leaning towards Save Our Minnesota Orchestra, but Save Our Minnesota Orchestra was taken, and Save Our MN Orchestra, and Save The MN Orchestra, and even just phrases like Save Our Orchestra, period. There were at least 13 different permutations of it all. And so I checked who had registered those, and it turns out it was the management of the Minnesota Orchestra. So at that point, I was just feeling, well, I can't really what I was feeling on public radio, I guess, but I don't think that kind of language is allowed here. But I was really angry, and my friends were really angry. So we went with Save Our Symphony Minnesota, saveoursymphonymn.org, and we launched a week ago, and here I am talking with you guys about it. <laughs> and that actually made for a really good Twitter handle, too, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It ended up working just fine in the end. And so what is the purpose now of Save Our Symphony Minnesota? Our primary goal right now is just to end the lockout. Um, Senator George Mitchell is involved, and he's trying to get the two parties to agree to groundworks for mediation. That's still up in the air. We're really trying to pressure the board of the Minnesota Orchestra to accept the ground rules that Senator Mitchell has laid out. So right now that's our prime focus, but in future we want to try to move forward to um, opening up more communication between board and audience members because we've had a really difficult time getting through to the board and management. Okay, I won't ask which side is the IRA in this dispute, Senator Mitchell (laughs) having settled or soothed the waters in Ireland. Anastasia Sulkis is here in the studio. She covers classical music for our colleagues at NPR Music. Anastasia, you talked to the Minnesota 
Orchestra Administration for your story. What did they say? Well, I was prompted this. I obviously have been following the labor troubles and disputes in in Minnesota as well um, from the point of view of a journalist, not an advocate. And when Emily published her findings, obviously they were incredibly interesting. We went back and verified independently that, yes, these were indeed uh, the situation. They were purchased by the Minnesota Orchestra Administration. So I reached out to them and said, you know, would, would you talk to us about this? And I thought it was very interesting. They said, well, listen, you know, when you know that you're entering into this sort of situation, this is a very common business practice. Now, you can take exception to how it was handled. Like, for example, usually very often in large businesses, such purchases would be masked by a third-party buyer so that it's not quite so obvious what's going on. They said it's well within their rights and, you know, there's no reason to be private. And frankly, they didn't understand what the hullabaloo was all about. I think it's really interesting, though, to see that a stakeholder like Emily and fellow fans of the Minnesota Orchestra are in the era that we're living in, that there's this certain amount of flattening out via social media, that they can now have a foot in the discussion. You know, it used to be that a ticket buyer, a fan, really the only agency they had were would they buy tickets or not. And they signaled their approval by buying tickets and, and attending performances. And if they weren't interested, they would withhold their dollars. And they may, you know, people would write letters and so forth. But this feels a little more direct. Our third guest here in the studio is Ryan J. Davis, who is vice president of a digital startup called Vocative. He has worked on social media campaigns at Blue State Digital and also the 2004 Howard Dean campaign. And you are nodding vigorously. You started nodding vigorously when Anastasia talked about this being standard practice to buy up domain names. Yeah, so absolutely. You know, I've worked on many uh, uh, campaigns where we have bought all the negative domains surrounding our candidate because you don't want to have uh, those open for your competitors to use. And, And, you know, it's pretty standard practice now to do that. Um, she's absolutely right that, that they should have used a third-party masking service. So it shows that they sort of had read about this tactic somewhere um, and they didn't execute it perfectly. But it's, it's you know, uh, it's, it's definitely uh, a pretty much a, a best practice, I think, in the, in the digital space right now. But what's really exciting to me is, is uh, how Emily has gone from this sort of journalist uh, place to this sort of activist journalist place and has been sort of empowered by uh, the, the people she's met over social media to do that. Emily, I should clarify, you're actually in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. You're not even in Minnesota. Yeah, I'm about 90 minutes, two hours away. But But you're a big fan of the orchestra. In the the country, that's, you know, the nearest major city and kind of, quote, unquote, my orchestra. So uh, I'm going to throw this out to all of you. Do you think that even though the folks in Minnesota thought this was the thing to do, to buy up these domain names. It never occurred to them that somebody was going to figure out who had done it and that it would not look good to have done this? I don't think they thought anyone was going to find it, or if they did, that there would be no mechanism to spread it, because we actually reached out to a lot of press before I blogged about it, and nobody bit. So it took a blogger to figure that out. That's really interesting, and that's an element I didn't know. I will say, you know, in the conversation I had with Ms. Pappas, she pointed out... This is the representative this is, from sorry, the orchestra. Yes, the, the press representative of the orchestra. She pointed out, well, the musicians of the Minnesota Orchestra launched their own domain sort of 
stating their position and using that as their vehicle uh, for sharing their point of view around the same time. And I actually went back and went to Who Is and figured out that they'd actually purchased that two years beforehand. The musicians. The musicians had purchased their own domain name two years beforehand, long before contract negotiations had been sour. And I think it's an interesting point of right. They didn't publish anything on it, as far as I can tell, until June of 2012. Uh, but they had had that name. Someone affiliated with them had had that name reserved for two years. Um, well, it's but interesting it's- that both sides then had clearly been gearing up for this battle. They purchased that domain name two years before. The Minnesota Orchestra Administration purchased the names they purchased in May when they knew that, and then the lockout happened in October. Both sides gearing up, they couldn't have just settled? Well, I think that one thing that is different about um, what the Minnesota Orchestra bought versus what the musicians bought was that it appears that the Minnesota Orchestra was trying to shut out patrons and that they copied the name of the Detroit Symphony Audience Advocacy Group. That, I think, is why it's resonating with people, because they feel like the MOA, the Minnesota Orchestral Association, is trying possibly to muzzle them. Right. I mean, it didn't work. Yeah, it it failed miserably, right? And at the same time, when you couldn't get newspapers to cover this, uh, you were able to blog about it, and then the newspapers had to cover it. So I think that we're seeing this real shift from the power of institutions to dictate policy and and, and sort of the really top-down way they've been doing for generations to an ability for people to... Uh, using things like social media actually start to express their opinions and, and filter information up, which is what, what's great about social media. And to actually start a dialogue, too, to add on to that, something that you wrote, I think, yesterday or this morning, Emily, that I found very resonant was the fact that this whole conversation and and the administration's response to me was really the first time that they had responded to you even indirectly. Yes. Is that correct? Um, in- In two days, it will be a year since I started blogging about this. I have reached out to them countless times. They've known I've been out here for months and months. I've never once gotten a response from, like, their PR person or their CEO or anything. They just pretend I do not exist. And so it was really a big deal the other day when the story broke and their PR person was basically forced to acknowledge that I do, in fact, exist. Well, I hope this has taught them a lesson about sort of the the new media economy and and uh, and how these things can can travel even if they they can't just ignore someone anymore. I mean, that person has a platform. And this also happened at a, sorry at a really really crucial juncture. You know, this this lockout has been going on for ten months now, but this comes right in the weeks before their music director Osmovanska said that he would be forced to resign if there wasn't a, a deal reached. Uh, it by comes September. By September, exactly. It comes right at the point in which they the uh, the Swedish label they've been collaborating with on recordings, BIS, postponed the next album that they were going to record with Minnesota saying that even if a deal were reached today, they simply wouldn't be ready. They haven't been performing they together enough. Exactly. Right. And, uh, and you know, so there's this, and they're scheduled to play a series of concerts at Carnegie Hall in November. So this this came at a very fascinating and very messy moment uh, for the negotiations. So I want to throw out there, Ryan, how effective are these online campaigns during labor battles? Uh, they can be really effective. I mean, we've seen uh, unions use uh, uh, online campaigning really, really effectively. SEIU has done some really smart stuff. SEIU uh, being? Service industry, uh, service industry employees union. One of the bigger unions in, in America that sort of focuses on digital. 
Um, but you know, you see things like uh, Trayvon Martin is, I think, a great example of an online advocacy campaign where nobody was talking about this incident. Uh, a bunch of people on the internet started talking about it, and then a bunch of organizations picked it up, and then the media picked it up. So they can be really effective, um, usually at getting attention, whether or not they can really push you over that line to get to get whatever that action is that you want done done. Uh, that that really is up to how talented and how uh, uh, excited the organizers are about doing it over the long haul. And I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, you know, I didn't know that all this stuff was going on. I understand what's happening in the conflict a lot better after reading what you write. And I honestly believe that there are a lot of people out there because of social media who are siding with the musicians, frankly, because they've read my work. And it looked like that you were giving them really concrete uh, actions to take, right? Because the sign of a bad social media campaign is when you say, like this page, and and there's really nothing that follows. Um, But you're having people reach out and contact uh, the board of directors and things, like really specific actions that that can imply pressure. Yeah, we're really trying to um, stress the concrete action part of it. And I, I have a question for you, if you don't mind. I mean, you really, when when we spoke the other day, we were talking about how the, the audience is sort of the third leg of a stool, you know, it's not yeah. necessarily, do you see that, that your position is being different in, in either substance or tone than what the musicians have been taking? I mean, if you're um, not, if you're not representing the musicians, does that mean? Yeah, that- I think so. I think we can take the position, I think, that the board and management and musicians have to serve us, maybe. And maybe that's a controversial stance to take, but we believe that they should be held accountable to us probably before any other stakeholder because without the audience, there is no reason to have an orchestra. So, yeah, I think our tone and um, what we suggest to do and stuff, we can work differently from the musicians and have our own voice in the process. Now, Ryan, you're giving a talk in October called What the Arts Can Learn from Coney 2012, Occupy Wall Street, and Other Viral Movements. First of all, remind us what Coney 2012 was and what, without tipping your hand there of the talk you're giving, what can the arts learn from this? Coney 2012 was a hugely viral video last year uh, trying to catch this guy, Joseph Coney, who's a a horrible warlord, sort of the ultimate in in Africa. Uh, And and basically, I think one of the big things that that we can learn, and one of the things for me that the arts actually has that a lot of uh, other organizations don't have right now, is the ability to get people in, in a shared space. And what I think one of the things we've learned from Occupy Wall Street and from the Arab Spring is the importance of physical space and people getting together offline. So uh, the arts has that. You know, you go to a theater, you go to, to a concert hall, um, and figuring out how to activate people to be better uh, donors and better audience members is something that I think that, that the arts can definitely learn from these big protest movements. All right, let's look at a slightly different example. There is a Change.org petition out there now to try and convince the Metropolitan Opera to dedicate its opening night gala to the gay community, and that is because the gala features two stars, Anna Trebko and Valery Gergiev, who are known to be friends with Vladimir Putin, who recently passed anti-gay legislation in Russia. Here is what Andrew Rudin, the New Jersey composer who started that petition, told WQXR. The grotesqueness of performing a work as the opening gala of the Met season. It's almost tragicomical that they would be making their living off of this remarkable work of Tchaikovsky, 
supposedly one of their great cultural heroes. In response, the Metropolitan Opera issued a statement saying it's proud of its history as a creative base for gay artists and that it is not appropriate for performances to be used for political purposes. Anastasia, what do you make of a petition like that? Well, let me offer a tiny bit of context, if I may. Um, not only are both Anna Trebko and Valery Gergiev friends of, of Vladimir Putin, they also actually both have uh, actively campaigned for him in his last presidential campaign. Uh, uh, Gergiev made a fairly widely disseminated video entitled Why I'm Voting for Putin and talking specifically about the feelings of patriotism and pride and, and sort of the, the return of international respect that he thinks Putin has brought back to Russia. So I think that's a, when you have artists who are actively campaigning, I think that gives it a little bit of a different turn, a little bit of a different tenor. In terms of whether or not it's possible, I think I'll go back to, again to this idea of single voices or, you know, hopefully once they aggregate in social media, if that's their goal, to have an active voice talking to an institution and talking to world famous artists in a more of a parity situation than they ever could have had otherwise. It's a sea change. You know, we've seen, and Ryan can speak to this, certainly we see this in political life, in socioeconomic life, you know, these sorts of things. You know, everybody goes onto Twitter now to complain to the airlines when their flights are late. You know, these are avenues that were not available even a few years ago. And I think it's just really an echo of wider society. You know, it's it's funny because uh, I feel like the performing arts tend to, uh, you know, be a couple years behind in the latest marketing and uh, sort of tactics. So a lot of uh, a lot of different brands and organizations have had to deal with this problem three, four, or five years ago. Um, have already sort of adjusted to the new age, right? I understand how quickly you need to respond, and that no longer can you ignore bloggers when they email you, uh, things like that. So I, I think that we're witnessing a, a, everybody trying to learn how to kind of adopt to this new new technology and new way of people communicating. But uh, you know, Change.org is an incredibly powerful website that uh, brings together uh, tens of thousands of people all the time uh, to, to really oppose uh, bad things and, and, and fight for good things. So it's, it's interesting to see how effective those sort of petitions are. Well, as of August 28th, that Met petition from Andrew Rudin has 7,200 signatures. So not an enormous number. What do online petitions have to do to be effective? Well, you know, it really it really depends if he ever actually thought they would the, the Met would actually do that, or was he more trying to start a conversation about these these two performers, and uh, and that conversation is obviously happening. Uh, you know, it's happening on, on on this show, it's happening on the internet, um, and I think that uh, this is just another bad piece of PR for for Russia, which has seen a very rough uh, few weeks for some very bad laws. Anastasia, do you have any feeling about how this is going to play out? I'm not in the business of of prognosticating, but I would guess that the Met seems unlikely to move on its position in the next four-ish weeks. Well, and there is the question of, do we mix politics and performance. The interesting thing is that even though the Met said, you know, it's not appropriate, Anna Trebko, I don't know about Gergiev, I do know Anna Trebko released a statement through her PR people saying, you know, it's a pleasure to collaborate with all of my colleagues, regardless of sexual orientation or ethnicity or race, etc. And it was a very broad and very friendly statement, but it did not 
touch the specifics, and, and I think that's fairly standard practice. But again, the fact is that an artist like that felt a need to respond at some level, even if it was not couched in, I'm responding to Mr. Rudin. I, I think that's really a change in dynamic again, that power, power balance has definitely tipped. All right, so yet another instance, the video about the Land Philharmonic, which is an orchestra in Paraguay that plays instruments that are literally created out of trash. That got enormous viral attention when it came out. It's actually a teaser, a trailer for a movie that's coming out next year. How does something which like they're that... trying to found on Kickstarter? That was the point of the trailer was to raise money, which I think is a very smart and very common use of of those sorts of pieces of of viral. You, you make these things hoping that they'll go viral, with the point of not just saying, "Oh, isn't that wonderful," but really to raise money. You know, exactly, and that's when social media becomes really important when there is that next step where it's like you you see the the trailer, you're like, "I want to make help help get that movie made," or you see the petition and you say, "I might not go to the Met this year because of because of this." So. You know, it's really getting people to take those next steps. It's really important. Emily, are you guys with your website at all using this to try and raise money or just to try and raise awareness? We are eventually planning on at least raising some money to cover some of our expenses because we do plan on having some um, events outside the newly completed orchestra hall that uh, the lobby is just being done that costs $50 million. Um, we're going to be out there protesting. Um, you know, So we'll need some money to cover some of the expenses of things like that. Right now we're not fundraising for musicians directly, but if there are others who step forward who are, we like to promote those guys. So are things like online petitions and rallying websites something that arts groups now should be devoting resources to? Ryan, I'm going to throw that to you. Yeah, I, I mean, I've worked with arts advocacy groups uh, for a while now that, that spend a lot of time thinking about how to mobilize people online. And I think that as our culture shifts and people spend more and more and more time attached to these devices, the performing arts is going to have to think of a way to get them unattached from those devices for two hours so they can come to come to their event. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really interesting that uh, over the years, the past several years, off and on, I've done sort of social media 101 for arts presenters, um, usually through um, the group APAP, which is the American Association of Performing Arts Presenters. And I think it's really interesting that people are now understanding within the organizations that they do have to give some amount of time and thought to these, you know, and and really I think what I'm hearing from Ryan is that they have to do these things with a purpose. Uh, you know, it's not enough. Maybe two years ago it was enough to say, oh, flash mob, and we have a performance coming up of the same material. That's not quite enough. I mean, there really is that a seed of some sort of you want someone to take an active step. And I think that people in this economy particularly are very flummoxed by the idea of they have, they're very short on resources and time and attention, and they can see these things as detracting from their core missions. I would argue that that's, they're absolutely essential to their core missions and the continuation of their core missions, that they really have to spend the time and effort to make these things and make them a reality and learn how to spread them and to do it smartly, too, and realize that, that they see these things as a, a method of sharing a message but also hearing feedback, that it's a two-way. It's actually not a two-way. It's multi-way conversation. It's not there as just a megaphone to broadcast your le- next press release. Right, and so, and so often you see arts organizations just broadcasting and I always exactly. say it's called social media yeah. for a reason you have to be you have to be social you have to respond exactly there there is 
great depth to the reception. You've got to receive. You have to be willing to have that back and forth. And if you can't have that back and forth and you can't understand that criticism and questioning may very well be part of that territory, then you can't be doing this. And, you know, if they really wanted to keep an organization like uh, Emily's from, from succeeding, uh, instead of just buying a bunch of domains, maybe if they, when she had reached out to them, if they had reached out to her and started a dialogue, uh, they could have at least, um, uh, you know, been on the same page about some issues and, and maybe not had to go this route. Emily? Yeah, I totally agree. I wish that they had responded to me a year ago when I reached out to them. So you are a violinist and a violist. Do you see a new career for yourself now as an activist? I don't know. I mean, I've always loved activism. I'm fascinated by politics and media. Um, The last week has been insane and crazy in a really lovely way. We have a member that... Um, used to work in the emergency room, and she's like, I haven't had a rush like this since I used to work in the emergency room. So it's been really intense, and I don't know if I could handle it long term, but um, for now I'm very, very happy with the work that we're doing and the reception that we've gotten. Well, thank you very much. Thank you all for joining us. Lots of fun. Thanks so much, Naomi. Thank you. Yay. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were NPR Music's Anastasia Tsoukas, Ryan J. Davis of Vocative, and blogger and Wisconsin-based Minnesota Orchestra fan Emily Hogstead. Brian Weiss is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.